Please do sit down. A very warm welcome to you. If we haven't met, my name is Tom and I'm the Senior Minister and we're looking at Titus on page 1198. If you can turn to that with me in the Bibles. So, Father God, we pray now that you would speak clearly by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts to hear you, to see what you're saying in our lives, in our world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew Thorburn is an Australian who's the former CEO of of National Australia Bank, which is one of Australia's four largest banks. And in October last year, it was announced that in retirement, he would be taking up the role of chairman of Essendon Aussie Rules Football Club in Melbourne, where he lived. Uh, But within 24 hours, the media had seized on the fact that Andrew Thorburn was also a Christian, and he was the equivalent of a trustee of an Anglican church in Melbourne called City on a Hill. And journalists went through the website of that church, and they found a couple of sermons from before the time that Andrew Thorburn himself was involved in the church, and these sermons were about the Bible's teaching on both homosexual practice and abortion. And these sermons weren't inflammatory, they weren't rude or unkind, Um, They simply made the case for a biblical view of these subjects, which is increasingly at odds with the wider culture's view. And the result was a media frenzy. And within that 24-hour period, Andrew Thorburn had been forced to resign from the role that he had only just begun because his association with a church that believed and taught these things was deemed to be incompatible with the football club's values as a safe, inclusive, diverse and welcoming club for all, as they put it. By the way, Andrew Thorburn, as the CEO of National Australian Bank, had overseen and promoted policies on inclusion and diversity in in the bank that he oversaw. Uh, similar to the kinds of things that many of us will experience in our own workplaces. Christians can sometimes struggle to know how to engage with these, but he as a Christian was clear for himself that he didn't think it was right to impose his views on non-Christians who he was working in the bank that he was leading, Um, as if being a Christian CEO means pretending everybody in your company is a Christian and needs to live as Jesus called his followers to live. He, He understood that he couldn't do that. And so he was willing, in his role as the CEO, to promote the kind of policies that lots of companies and organisations will have. Um, But that wasn't enough. It was his association with that church that became a major problem. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody. Um, And the fact that this got a lot of media coverage tells you it's, it's quite unusual for this sort of thing to happen. Um, But it is a little indicator of how our 
culture increasingly processes these issues where Christians want to be nuanced and careful and sensitive and express both truth and love but the world says no it's black and white and being neutral is not enough silence will not do you must be a vocal ally or you are a bigot and a homophobe and all the rest of it And the Andrew Thorburn story tells us that increasingly it won't just be church leaders, but it may also be church members who come under the microscope even for associating with a church that takes the Bible seriously in the 21st century. Now I say it may be, we don't know. We don't know, do we? We can't predict the future and to sort of doom monger and say, oh it's all terrible and it's all going to be awful. Well, that's not biblical either. But it seems like it is a real possibility. So can you see that the pressure increasingly is on churches to tone down what they teach about issues around sex and marriage and identity. To listen to the culture, to change what has been the historic mainstream universal view of Christians about marriage and sex. Now as we've seen over the last couple of weeks as we look at this letter to Titus, this is a particularly pressing question in the Church of England. Grace was alluding to that as she led us in, in prayer earlier. This coming week, General Synod meets. Now General Synod is not a baddie from a Marvel movie, but is the kind of church's parliament. Um, of, uh, and they meet and, and, and discuss things. And they'll be considering these proposals about blessing same-sex marriages uh, in churches um, and, uh, and also considering is, is the church going to ch- change what it says publicly about uh, whether sex is for marriage as the church has always taught exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman well this letter to Titus and the reading we heard just now reminds us that, that there have always been clashes between what Christians believe and what the wider culture believes. In fact, it's odd, actually, when the two agree. It's unusual. You wouldn't particularly expect that. But we're going to see here how Paul, in these verses, writes to Titus about a similar issue of people within the church trying to change the teaching of the church to accommodate the values of the culture. That's what's going on behind, particularly these verses in 10 to 16, as he writes this letter to Titus. But again, behind the whole letter as a whole. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't accommodate to the culture. That is a terrible idea. So let's see how he, how he says that and what, what, what he says to address these, these massive issues that we face today as well as other aspects of our lives. We can see, first of all, <clears throat> he talks about the false teaching that is merely human from verses 10 to 12 and then verse 14. There are people, if you look verse 10 on page 1198, there are people, Paul says, verse 10, whose teaching is meaningless and deceptive. Now it seems that the the teaching possibly sounded impressive, it had a Jewish flavour he talks about, possibly something to do with circumcision, a kind of, you know, this this is the religious way to live. And verse 14 he talks about Jewish myths, But verse 11, it is leading people astray. It's disrupting households and families. And verse 12, it's reflecting what the wider Cretan culture is like. Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. 
at the core of it, verse 14, is that what they teach is merely human. It doesn't come from God. Now today it's clear that the debates that go on about sex and marriage aren't really actually about sex and marriage. They're actually about even deeper questions. About human flourishing, what it means to be human, what the good news of the gospel actually is. Because for many today, what what, what people want is a gospel that says, be yourself. That's the kind of message we want to live by. Be yourself. Be free to be yourself. You are loved exactly as you are. No ifs, no buts, no change needed to anything. Be yourself. And that's the kind of message we will hear all over the place. But that contrasts rather dramatically with what we heard Jesus say in the first reading. Wasn't it? Did you you hear what he said of, of his followers? Not be yourself, but he said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Not be yourself, deny yourself. That's not to say you're not loved. You, you are loved. You are loved as you are. But sin is real and it separates us from God and we need to turn from sin and to deny those sinful desires, whatever they are, greed, malice, envy, as well as sexually immoral desires. That is the road not to misery, as the world will tell us if you try and deny those things. No, it's not the road to misery. It's the road to new life and new identity in Christ. The be yourself gospel chimes very nicely with the culture around us. Because the be yourself gospel is what everyone says. You know, it's what you'll hear day after day and week after week in school assemblies and citizenship classes and company diversity policies. And it's attractive, isn't it, the be yourself gospel? Of course it is. Because who doesn't like to be affirmed? But when the church simply says what the culture already believes anyway, far from becoming more relevant, it actually becomes less relevant, doesn't it? Because, well, if the church is just saying what everyone else already says anyway, and you can hear anywhere, or in the media, at school, at work, well, why listen to the church at all when it's simply parroting what everyone else says already? So the Archbishop of York went on the radio a couple of weeks ago and said, what he said was, the Church of England now believes sex in any committed relationship is fine. Actually, I think the Archbishop of York is speaking beyond what he can actually legitimately say. That is not what the Church of England has agreed at all. And he may be trying to advance the agenda by making those kind of statements. But when he, when, he, when he makes those kind of statements and when people like that do that, well, actually he's doing nothing more than telling the world what all our teenagers will hear every week in PSHE at school. It's just sort of keeping up with what the wider world is doing. Why do we need the Archbishop of York to tell us that? When anybody can tell us that. There's nothing new there. There's nothing distinctive. It's merely human commands. What is distinctive is to stick to the historic, mainstream, universal understanding of the Bible on these matters. 
And yes, when they clash with our, with our perceived understanding of, of ourselves and the world and make us think, oh, hang on a minute, how can, how can we believe that today? Well, that is an opportunity to go deeper and to think, well, okay, if there is a God and he made us and he designed us and he knows us better than we know ourselves, well, maybe actually we should listen to him. And maybe we can trust him, even though our culture will tell us, no, 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 that, 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 that can't work at all, but hang on, he's God, surely he knows what we're like and we can trust him. And to listen to him and realise that this is not therefore just about rules, about you know, what you can and can't do, it's much deeper than that. It's about our relationships reflecting the relationship with the God who made us. Union in difference reflecting Christ and the church. We thought a lot more about this in the little series that we did last year in the evening service <clears throat> called The Purpose of Sexuality. Where we thought what is going on behind what the Bible teaches about sex and marriage. To get beyond just seeing it as rules but to see how it reflects the gospel itself. I commend that to you if you, if you have not heard that and want to think about it more. But here, Paul is saying, don't listen to teaching that is merely human, that is merely keeping up with the world, what the world around us already thinks anyway. Don't listen to that teaching. But, then, it's not just about teaching, it's about action and it's about how we live. So he goes on, secondly, to the false godliness that is just for show, verses 15 and 16. The false godliness is just for show. If you were here last time, we heard that godliness is a key criterion for church leaders. It's not just what you say, it's about what you do. And behind that is the big theme of this letter. It's about the truth that leads to godliness. But here, verse 16, are people who claim to know God, they talk the talk very impressively, they look the part, but their actions deny what they say. They don't walk the walk. They are, Paul says, detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Nothing is pure. So it's all a massive cover-up for immorality of various kinds. And in Crete, what that means is it's all a massive cover-up for being exactly like the culture around them in their morals and in their way of living. There's clearly enough about these teachers that people think they're worth listening to, but they're like a cheap piece of jewellery. You know, you see a cheap piece of jewellery and you think, oh, you know, just, just when you catch sight of it, oh, that looks quite expensive. But, you know, actually, if you, if you bought it and you picked it up, you'd quickly realise, well, there's something not quite right about this. It doesn't feel quite right. And, you know, day one, it might look kind of shiny and nice, but day two, the, the lacquer is beginning to wear off. And after a week or two, it's become really clear this is no um, real gold at all, and it's just a cheap piece of metal. That is what these teachers are like, says Paul. They have the appearance of godliness, but underneath they're exactly like the world. Sometimes today this effect is achieved by impressive-looking religion and ritual. You know, it looks really impressive with all the, the dressing up and the robes and all the rest of it. 
but it's all in the service of merely human teaching that mimics the world around us. Closer to home, though, it can sometimes be you know, impressive Bible teaching, as it were, but masking a darker reality behind the scenes. Paul is saying, watch out for both. Watch out for the outward teaching and impressiveness that masks an immorality that is actually just like the world behind it. But it's worth also thinking about this because there are people today who will say to kind of to, to, to evangelicals and church leaders like me and, and, and to churches like ours, actually that what they'll say is actually you're the ones with the false godliness that is just for show. They'll say, because you, you talk about Jesus and you talk about love, but then they'll say, no, you're homophobic. Because you say that if you're following <coughs> Jesus, the right place for sex is in marriage between the man and the woman. So you're the ones with false purity, with corrupted minds and conscious, consciousness, as, as he, um, the language that he uses here. So what do we make of that? Well, I heard a, a, a really helpful analogy recently that helps with this. So think about Buddhists for a moment. Buddhists believe, most Buddhists believe, it is wrong to eat meat. Okay? So that's just part of Buddhist belief and practice. And they will want to tell you that eating meat is bad for you. And in particular, that if you want to follow the teachings of the Buddha, in particular, you should be a vegetarian. But does that mean that Buddhists are inherently carnivore-phobic? Well, well, surely not. They don't hate people who eat meat. They just have a particular view of the morality of eating meat. And in particular, they're saying that if you want to follow the teachings of the Buddha, well, this is what goes with that. This is what that life looks like. Can you see and it's the same with this kind of accusation of homophobia that flies around. You see, actually Christians should be the first to say that properly understood homophobia is wrong and evil, of course. Of course it's totally wrong to hate someone because of their sexuality. Or to act in a way that hurts them. Of course it is. And we should repent of ways where we've not said that clearly enough as a church or as individuals. But surely that is different from saying Christians believe that God has designed sex for marriage between a man and a woman and that applies to anyone of any sexuality who wants to follow Jesus and in particular applies to, to anyone who says they want to follow Jesus because Jesus taught the Old Testament's teaching on marriage and relationships. So you will sometimes hear people say, well, Jesus didn't mention these things. No, no, he taught... He, he, Matthew chapter 19 he taught very clearly uh, upholding the Old Testament's view on marriage, which is about uh, between a man and a woman. It's right there in, in Matthew chapter 19. And beyond that, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, not they must be themselves, but they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And actually, that is going to be difficult and challenging for everyone in different ways. Everyone. But Paul is saying, look out 
for false godliness that is just a show, that is just a cover-up for being like the world around us. The question that then remains is, or does Paul have any words other than condemnation for these false teachers? Is there any hope? So before we finish, we can see thirdly and finally, yes, there is hope, even for those who are teaching and living in the ways that he criticises here, as he talks in verse 13 about the true gospel that leads to true godliness. If you just, just have a look at this, look at, look at verse 13 with me. The second half of that verse is striking, given how strong Paul is being here. Rebuke them sharply, he says, but not so that they will just know how wrong they are, but rather so that they will be sound in the faith. And remember the theme through the, the, the letter of the truth that leads to godliness. It is the truth of the gospel that will motivate Titus to silence and warn against false teachers. But it is the same gospel that has the possibility of bringing everyone back to the truth, back to true godliness and sound faith. No one is beyond hope, not even us. And not even those who teach what is false. That is how powerful the gospel is. The false gospel that says, be yourself, well, actually, that can't do that. It can only affirm and say, you're fine as you are and nothing needs to change. And yet we all know that there are areas in our lives that we need to change and we must change. And the gospel that says, oh, just be yourself, well, it has no power to do that. That's the problem, isn't it? There is no hope for changing on the inside to change our hearts. No power to deal with our selfishness, our greed, our anger, our lust, our, 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 our idolatry. The gospel that says, be yourself and you're fine as you are, won't change any of those things at all. And we'll carry on in our rebellion against the God who made us and in the ways that we hurt one another. But in Jesus there is a different gospel that says, actually no, we're all sinners, all of us. We're all broken. But there is a Saviour who died for us. And whether we have sinned sexually or taught falsely or simply fallen short of God's standards in many different areas of our lives as we all have anyone can have a fresh start with this saviour and with this gospel when we respond to Jesus' call to come and follow him that is the gospel that Paul is reminding Titus is going to change his life and it's going to change the lives of all who hear it you see, in an increasingly hostile and confused culture that is going to get increasingly critical of Christians just believing what Christians have always believed. Well, actually, it is still only this gospel of a saviour who died for sinners that can change us and that can change the world. That's why we need to stick with that gospel, with this Saviour, so we can hold on to Jesus and know that he's with us.
and bring that hope to the world around us, which so desperately needs it. Let me lead us in prayer now. Father God, we come before you knowing we so desperately need Jesus, each of us. And we thank you that Jesus has come into the world to die for sinners. We need him, we want to trust in him. And we want to answer that call to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Help us to do that, whoever we are. And to find hope in Jesus through that. And help us to be wise as we reflect on the issues in the wider world and in the church. us to be wise and loving and to keep holding out the true hope that is found in following Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.